And it's Mark 11, 1 through 25. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of them standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches and they cut, or that they had cut from the fields. And those who went away before <clears throat> and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of, money cha- of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. My name is Darren. I'm one of the pastors here and have the pleasure of preaching God's word to you this morning. Um, Just as a heads up, these um, vignettes in Jesus' life as he goes into Jerusalem for the first time and over the span of a couple days, some of these stories are very familiar to us and I think some of us have a much more light-hearted, um, joyful, exuberant um, understanding of them. And as a heads up, this is going to be a bit of a heavy sermon this morning. Um, we see that Jesus is moved to tears in this section. Um, it's actually not in the Mark section, but another one of the gospel writers um, shows us that, and then we see that Jesus is moved to anger. So I want to break up this section into four events spanning these two days and try to give you guys a unified theme 
throughout these couple days in the life of Jesus. Um, so we're going to break it up into the four sections, his, his entrance into Jerusalem, the fig tree, the temple, and the mountain. And before we get going, I want to acknowledge that there's multiple pull, 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 levels of reading this. We just the first basic level. Um, the same way I did years before I was a Christian, I remember reading this and thinking, that's one weird weekend. Jesus did some really weird things. Um, kind of at the pinnacle of that weirdness is him kind of freaking out and throwing a little temper tantrum at a fig tree. That's the way I read it anyway. Um, I want to give kind of three levels to this, these four events in Jesus' life. And starting with the first level, acknowledge that it does, on the onset, seem very, very strange. Um, it almost looks like this first century carjacking at the beginning, where he takes, a, he takes a donkey tied to a tree. The Lord has need of this. All right, moving on, he comes into Jerusalem and has the biggest crowd amassed that Jesus has ever seen up until this point. And what happens with that crowd? He doesn't stand and give a huge sermon. He doesn't rally that crowd um, to kind of take over the Roman Empire, but literally says nothing, and the crowd dissipates. It withers overnight, just like the tree. Next, he has this kind of scouting trip where he kind of looks at the temple, sees what's going on, comes and sees the tree, makes some comments. And then the next morning, early on, he comes out, seems to completely flip out, throw tables over. It says that he takes a whip and drives out the oxen and the sheep in another one of the um, parallel passages. And then, to top that off, he seems to almost get hangry. Like it says he's hungry and he sees a tree that doesn't have fruit like he hoped it would. And it seems like he does you know, the same thing that a toddler might if he like stubs his toe on a toy, like he grabs it and throws it or something. He takes it out on this poor, unassuming, innocent tree and curses it till it wilters. And then he kind of ends with this kind of weird, almost about face where he seems to teach this, this almost prayer telepathy, like, you want to move things? Here's a huge mountain. Try that. That's the first level, and before I was a Christian, the way I read it was just this weird, disjointed grouping of really awkward things that Jesus said and Jesus did. But I want to move us um, in the sermon to the second layer of understanding the cultural context of how, where, when, and why Jesus did and said what he did and said. Um, and then thirdly, I want to take a third layer approach to talk about how it applies to us. And so looking at Jesus' heart and how we can actually be moved to have the same heart of Jesus. So if you guys would, join me in prayer and let's pray for our hearts as we um, get a little glimpse into Jesus' heart. Father, I just pray that um, through a heavy series of events, um, through looking at things that brought the creator of the entire universe, the savior of the whole world, to tears and to anger and to frustration, um, that we would recognize that each of us are deserving of that, and yet you took that anger, that payment on the cross for us. So we know as believers now in this room, those of us that have put our faith in you, that there is no condemnation, that we will never be the object of your anger or your wrath. But Father, we know that your conviction is a good thing for us, your conviction is not meant to lead us to guilt or despair or just, uh, well, what am I going to do? I, I can't do anything here. But it's, it's meant to spur us on in joy 
to a new way of life. So God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring us conviction this morning as we look at your words and your ways, and that um, I pray that we're cut to the heart, that we would recognize that there's not one person in this room that has a heart as large as Jesus, that cares as much as Jesus. So I pray that you would conform us into the image of your son, that you would bring us to have the same mind and the same heart as your son, and that you would do that this morning through your spirit. Amen. <clears throat> so the title of the sermon is Overturned Assumptions, and I think most of us recognize we have assumptions. I don't think many of us recognize how much those assumptions drive the way we live and act. So in your imaginations, imagine that you got here this morning, coming to the gathering at Taproot, and you pulled up, um, just because I want this you know, story to be realistic, imagine you got here 10 or 15 minutes late, since that's 90% of us. <laughs> Except for the visitors, right? They're here wondering, like, is there a church here? Like, what's going on at 10 a.m.? Imagine you get here late. You, you run in, getting your coffee, your pastry, um, whatever it is. If you have kids, you're trying to check them in. Now imagine you hear the music already going in this gathering place. And you come in through these back doors here. And you're ready to kind of silently slip in, take a seat. But rather than coming in and seeing the backs of everyone's heads, you see their faces. Every single chair is faced that way. And Will, standing there in the back, was standing there in the back playing his music. The stage on that side, the chairs facing that way. I could guarantee you that you'd realize very quickly you had assumptions they were overturned. Now imagine, go through the meet and greet time, check the kids in, the tap group kids, and then I come up, or whoever the preacher is comes up, and I stand here, and you're ready to hear the word of God preached, but nothing is said. For five minutes, for 10 minutes, another assumption overturned. You'd be a little bit awkward probably. I'd probably be more awkward. <laughs> um, but we all have these assumptions in our lives. You assume the chair you're sitting in isn't gonna break from the littlest things, but we also have these larger assumptions that the more we follow God, the more we actually follow God's word, things are gonna get easier, things are gonna make more sense, um, you're gonna be more secure in who you are. These bigger things we tend to assume too. Now, as we look at the first vignette of Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, um, it was a huge deal, it was his first, like footsteps into Jerusalem, this long trek from Galilee and all the surrounding area slowly down towards Jericho into Jerusalem, this had been coming towards this climax of Jerusalem, this Messiah figure. They were all ready for salvation, but they had an assumption of what that salvation looked like. And when Jesus comes in, the city, with the biggest crowd ever, he's getting this kingly treatment. As you guys saw in the scripture reading, people are taking off their clothes and putting it in the streets for him to walk over. That's, I heard one preacher say it's kind of like a red carpet kind of thing. People didn't, I mean, people still don't take their clothes off and put it in the streets. But in this day, like, this is where the animals trekked, and the streets weren't very clean, and this was something that was only done for kings. And so Jesus gets that treatment, but I want to point out a couple of assumptions that I think they had. 
First off, um, some of the cultural context is he comes in on a donkey, right? But as a king who is yet to overthrow this Roman rulership that was over the people of God, over the Jews, they were probably expecting something like a war horse. Rome was still in power, yet Jesus comes in on this animal of peace, a donkey, probably already scratching their heads at that point. Second, they use words about Hosanna, blesses he comes in the name of the Lord, and they talk about he who's bringing the kingdom of David. Now, if you look at the chapters before this in Mark 10, Mark 9 and 10, as it moves up to 11, he talks over and over about the kingdom of God and gives all these analogies and these parables about what it's like. And he never uses the term kingdom of David, but they're looking for someone that's gonna bring the people of Israel as a nation back into that, the good old days, that epoch where David was king over the whole land of Israel, where the temple was the pinnacle of all humanity in that area. And yet, Jesus doesn't talk that way. He refers to his kingdom as the kingdom of God. And the word Hosanna they use is they're singing that to him. It means God deliver us, God save us. And it's usually used in a way of talking about save us from our enemies who are overpowering us. I think it's an okay song to sing, but I think that when we sing songs like Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the name, we forget that the original audience that sang that, sang that with completely wrong assumptions of the kind of saving they needed from Jesus. We, looking back, can see how Jesus saved. We can sing it differently. But this, these assumptions that Jesus was gonna come as Lord of Rome, not the Lord of the earth, I believe that they conflated this idea of a political savior with the reality of a savior of the world. And they saw what they wanted to see. They wanted an overthrow, and they wanted to be let loose of the Roman occupancy of their land, but Jesus didn't come in just majesty. He came in meekness. He came on a donkey. So a little bit of history. About 200 years before Jesus rides in to Jerusalem, there was what's called the Maccabean Revolt. And if you guys know your history, you'll know that what happened was this man, um, Judas Maccabeus, who ended up conquering over a span of a handful of years um, the, the ruling empire and actually brought the kingdom of God kind of back. The temple was kind of restored. There was a cleansing of the temple as he came in. And the only, the only ruler that we actually see that comes in on a donkey with palm branches is this Judas Maccabeus. And the name Maccabeus was given to him because it meant hammer. He was the one that was like a hammer against these oppressive peoples, and he set the people of God free. So I think what they're doing here is they're using this donkey and palm branch imagery, and they're, they're mixing God with politics. They're wanting another Maccabean revolt. They're wanting Jesus to take back the kingdom again. This is a huge thing for them. It was in everyone's minds. The, the Maccabean revolt is what resulted in the Jewish holiday Hanukkah. It was a huge deal. And when they were looking back at David's kingdom, they were looking for the good old days, and they were looking for that to be achieved through a political revolt. They were looking for Jesus to be that kind of revolutionary. And I think applying it to our lives, it's very similar as we find ourselves in a very politically charged season right now, 
to us looking for some kind of revolution, some kind of salvation, whether it's through the Democratic Party with wanting God's kingdom to finally come about in the sense that we see God's justice and his mercy come through. We look at the Republican Party and we say, finally, God's kingdom may be coming and we can see restoration of morality. We can see a binding or a preserving of of good works, of the law. Look at even libertarians and we see we're coming back to this idea of us having freedom and us having the ability to live as we, as we will, as God's freed us. All these things we can import and kind of conflate this, these religious connotations to as though if God were coming in on a donkey in Tiberian, he would automatically vote a certain way. He would automatically be all for a certain party. These were their assumptions. But the same crowd that was yelling Hosanna, just a matter of days later, was yelling crucify him. And why do you guys think that is? It's a real question. Disappointment? Yeah, totally. Anything else? Why the, why the change? Unmet assumptions, very, very similar. Disappointed and unmet assumptions. I think that's exactly it. I think that they recognized that Jesus wasn't meeting those assumptions. They were disappointed, and it's because they had their hope misplaced. It was in a political change, a political movement, and not in Jesus' worldwide goal of salvation. So applying it to our lives, what are the things that you want most in your life? And then what do you assume that God has for your future? Are they the same thing? Does what you want most in your life, do you assume that that's what God has for your future? Do you assume that you'd recognize Jesus if he did ride in on that donkey? Even one in this time and place 99% of the people who would say they believed in God didn't recognize him. Even knowing that he's the Messiah, they completely missed the point. They missed the boat. And they did that because they strayed from Scripture. And rather than seeing the God who is both humble and exalted, meek and in majesty, they focused on what they wanted to see. They wanted a majestic, bold political leader. Their view was lopsided because they had strayed from scripture. And the other ideas they had and the other desires they had became to them just next to scripture. So in my life, um, to try to give you guys uh, something to, to, to think about, I have, I've had many, many misplaced assumptions. Um, I've realized recently, as, as a lot of you guys know, that I'm a somewhat newer pastor here at Taproot. It's been less than a year and a half. I realized very quickly that I had a lot of assumptions as to what like pastoring would be like, what it would what it would mean, um, how it would it would weigh on me. Um, and some of those assumptions is that I really did believe that things would get easier. I felt this is a burden that God had put on my heart for quite a while. So, moving into this role as a full time employed person in ministry, that I would just feel like that burden was lifted and it was easier. 
And I will say it has not gotten easier. I'd say it's better because it's where God has me. Better doesn't mean easier. I thought that I would get used to people walking away from Jesus or used to people walking away from the church. And honestly, I've probably shed more tears in this last year and a half than I have in all the years before doing volunteer ministry. Um, I've never had nights where I'd actually lose sleep and be up in tears over people like I have being in ministry. So it's broken my heart in a way I did not realize my assumption is I would get used to it. And then lastly, and something that's been most recent, is I had this belief, this assumption, and talking with my wife um, kind of helped me see it. I had this assumption that because this is something God called me to, because this is something that I, I felt God gifted me toward, or towards for quite a while, that my identity, like who I was, my like, self-security would be solidified, that I would actually be more grounded in who I was. Um, but one of the biggest surprises in, in overturning of my assumptions is that it's actually, God's brought me to a place of brokenness more than anything, where I've really struggled with, who am I? Why am I even doing this? Was that a really bad decision? And to be honest, we all have those kind of questions with big things in our lives. Was there a wrong turn? Because God couldn't have actually wanted me to be where I am now. That's showing that we have assumptions on how God works in us and how God works through us. When we see this first like, reception of Jesus by the crowds in Jerusalem, it's his last positive reception. If you guys read on in the next chapters in, in the gospel, um, it gets worse. It seems like it's actually pretty good. They're receiving him, Hosanna, and it just goes downhill. He ends up being crucified by the same voices that welcome him in. There's a dark tint to this story. And let's move on to, to the fig tree. Um, I'm going to read for us that section again so it's fresh in our minds. Mark 11, verse 11. If I can find it. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing that in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And then skipping over to 20, when he encounters the fig tree again, as they passed by in the morning the next day, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So in between this coming into Jerusalem in the morning, surveying the temple and the fig tree, or in the evening, surveying the fig tree in the temple, and then moving over to Bethany. It's about a two-mile hike to the east. And he sleeps there, and he comes back and deals with the temple. But what we see um, in between in the book, I think it's in Matthew, it's one of the other accounts, is something happens in that evening after he leaves Jerusalem and goes back to Bethany, and before he comes back and clears the temple. 
we see that Jesus looks over Jerusalem and he says he sees them harassed and like sheep without a shepherd. And it says he weeps over them. There's this picture that we have of his welcome where Jesus is just completely enamored and satisfied with that reception. And in one of the gospels, it seems like he did accept the welcome of the children, those that were simple enough not to mix the God and politics. Um, but major, the majority like, feeling he has towards these people is he sees them as completely lost and weeps over them. He surveys the temple, he surveys the fig tree, and if he surveyed us, what would he see? If he looked at our assumptions and our hopes, what would he see? The fig tree in the Old Testament is a picture of Israel. Um, all through, you see in Jeremiah, we see in Isaiah, Israel is typified as a fig tree. And so we see his reaction towards the fig tree. It's really connected with his reaction towards the temple and seeing the Jewish religious system. It wasn't Jesus that they wanted as the answer. They saw the problem. They saw their oppression and they were held down under the thumb of Rome, but they weren't seeing Jesus as the answer to that problem. So Jesus came to see his chosen people's fruit. He came down to earth and he came to see what had the people of Israel what did they produce? Were they ready? Were they asleep on the job? Or were they watching and alert? And would they recognize their creator and their savior if he ruled into town? And in Jesus' look and his, his voice to this section, I hear sadness. Um, I, I hear someone that's been long expected and described and yet completely unrecognized and unwelcome. It's kind of like the stories that we've heard. They've been in movies, and a lot of, them, a lot of us have, have experienced it in real life. Um, when one, someone will go off to war, and they'll be gone years and years, and missing their wife and their kids so much, but upon their return, they find out their spouse hasn't waited. She's with another man. That's kind of the picture you see here, where Israel has completely pledged her, their allegiance and put their hope in Deliverance, but not deliverance from their sin. Deliverance from their Roman oppressors. So, what if Jesus looked at us, and what if he looked at us and said, what you think is fruit isn't fruit at all. It's worthless, that's, that's heavy. That reminds us of those sections where Jesus, at the end, will say to many, yes, you did miracles. Yes, you were very religious, you were very churchy, but depart from me, I never knew you. That should put some gravity in these words, that we aren't, in essence, any different as humans than the people of Israel. And so would we miss Jesus? What do you feel Jesus owes you? And how is that wrapped up in your expectations of him? Now I want to show that in this section, there's this little teeny phrase that I didn't really understand why it was there, but I think it gives hope in this, this grave pronouncement and judgment on the tree. I think Jesus would look and he wouldn't say it were worthless. He wouldn't say that our fruit is worthless, but I think Jesus might want to strip away some religion from us and refresh us, so to speak. It says the tree withered to the root. Jesus' mission didn't fail 
when he saw that Israel wasn't ready and prepared for him, when he saw that Israel didn't really want him, they wanted what he might give them. His ministry didn't fail, but he did prune the tree down a bit. So if there are places in your heart where you are just living as a Christian because it's comfortable and convenient for you, um, because there's not a better option out there that you know of, because maybe your family and your friends are believers, maybe you are a Christian, but you're completely addicted to the comfort that comes through just being completely isolated and unknown. As Jesus said, like sheep without a shepherd. No one really close enough to know and lead you. Maybe Jesus is asking, what do you need to give to me? What can I strip away? What religion is keeping you from seeing me? So next we look at the temple and its overturning of tables. Now, some of the cultural context of the temple, the temple was actually comprised of five parts. And I know this is a lot of kind of cultural history here, but we'll wrap it all together at the end. The temple had five parts. There was, um, on the very outer part, it was about 35 acres, this huge section called the Court of the Gentiles. And it was uncovered. It was essentially this outdoor area. And then after that, there was the court of the women, and then there was the court of Israel, then there was the court of the priests, then there was the Holy of Holies. And that's where the altar was. That's where sacrifices were made. And the court of the Gentiles is where this vignette of Jesus overturning temples, driving out animal sacrifices, and having anger at the money changers happens. He's angry at injustice. He's angry that there are those that are unhelped and unheard in there. And to give you guys more background, people would come up. Right now, we're nearing towards, in this time in Jesus' life, this festival of Passover, this huge festival. People will come from Ethiopia, from Egypt, from Lystra, from Pamphylia, all these nations and areas far away from Jerusalem, and they would travel two days, three days, sometimes four days, to come in, a pilgrimage, to make their sacrifices and to draw near to God. And for many of these people, making that long trek and offering sacrifices of animals was infeasible to bring animals with them. And so they would need to buy those animals there at the temple. Now there was this law for the temple upkeep, essentially this tax that would kind of keep the temple running and keep everything going. And this tax was pretty reasonable, but what happened is these money changers and these Jewish leaders they took the tax money and they said it has to be certain currency. It has to be coins without an image on it because of this idea of you're not supposed to have anyone else's image but God. And so what the money changers would do is they would take the people's money in. They were coming from other nations and had different currency and they said, no, that money's not good enough. You have to trade it in for the right currency. And what they would do is they would hike on this extortion, this tax of about 15% on that money exchange. So they would end up having to pay 15% more than they needed to just to be able to have the money to buy the oxen, the doves, the sheeps that they would sacrifice. And on top of it, and this is where it gets really, really bad, on top of it, they weren't able to just sacrifice any sheep, any oxen, any doves, but it had to be pure, unblemished, spotless, by the religious leader's estimation. So historically what happened is these money changers and these religious leaders around the temple, the court of the Gentiles yard, 
they would very, very rarely accept any animal as pure and acceptable for sacrifice that was purchased outside of the temple in Jerusalem. They would almost always only accept animals purchased within the temple, and those animals in the temple were 70%, or sorry, 10 to 20 times more expensive than the animals outside. So this is extortion, exploitation at its best, and the people that were being exploited were the people that were religiously the marginalized, um, the vulnerable, those that had made those long treks in and had barely the money to buy the animals but were being taken advantage of even more. And what we see in Jesus when he says, my father's house was meant to be a place of prayer for the nations, but you've made it a den of thieves, the function of the court of the Gentiles was not for changing money and currency transaction. The function was not to sell animals for sacrifice. That was never the function that God had intended. It was meant to be a place of worship like the rest of the temple, but for the Gentiles, for anyone that was not a Jew, for the ethnic minorities, for all the people that were not historically the people of God, they were invited in to worship in that place. And yet, it essentially became this outdoor market, this huge hustle and bustle where people were buying and selling and bartering, and there was no room for prayer. There was no room for worship. So what happens is there was an unjust treatment by the authorities, and yet Jesus has this passion, and he always does. And historically, the church has had passion for the marginalized and the oppressed among us. And Jesus speaks and Jesus acts and he lends his voice for those without a voice. And he stands for those that are downtrodden. You know, sometimes we'll think of the whole idea of Jesus flipping tables in the temple and buying and selling in there as like something that might be akin to like having, you know, sales inside of a church, whether it's like a coffee shop or a bookstore. I remember thinking like, oh, is this the same thing? But it's not. Those things are completely arbitrary. Like, you don't need coffee to be able to worship Jesus. You don't need to buy this book. But it would be like having an exorbitant, entrance fee for just hearing the word of God in a country where there was no other way to hear the word of God. They were selling worship to the people that were the most poor and the most vulnerable. There's two options that we have, to put it bluntly, with why Jesus did that. Either he's concerned with not just accommodating the ethnic minorities and the marginalized and oppressed of his day, but he wants accommodation. He, not just permitting them, but he wants to accommodate them. Or we can just say Jesus didn't like the Gentiles. He was mad they were even being allowed in there. I think in the context, we have to recognize that Jesus was actually giving a voice to them as they were being exploited and marginalized. Now, at this point, I know, uh, I know our church well enough to know that you can see me hinting around and moving towards a very hot button issue. Um, we've already hit politics, and we didn't get into right way or wrong way, but very clearly, the right way is not voting as though a political leader is a savior from this context. But now we're getting into this area of oppression of the marginalized. And I know a hot button issue in our country, and as well as our church, is this idea of racial inequality, of unfair treatment of African Americans. And I want to say off the bat, because I know that 
those of you that might have been getting close to napping with all that context, right now you're probably listening. I want to say off the bat, at Taproot Church, we're not taking sides with one people group, one ethnos or another, but we are wanting to be like God, who through the Old Testament, he very clearly opposes the proud and those that would seek to oppress, and it says that his heart is for justice and mercy. Over and over, there's this almost trilogy of terms that's used where he says that he cares for the orphan and for the widow and for the sojourner, the the immigrant. And Jesus has this care for his justice and mercy to roll down like water. And I want to say this is not political in as much as we're a church that cares about the unborn. We care about the injustice of abortion. But that doesn't mean we are now a Republican or a conservative church. In the same way, we're a church, I'm a leader, who cares about the marginalization and the inequality that is around us that we often, like them, don't see because that's just not what we're looking at. And that doesn't mean that's a democratic or leftist viewpoint. It's taking the side of God who cares for those that are marginalized and those that are unjustly treated. I know that the pushback is that, why can't we just get back to the gospel? This sounds like the social gospel. This sounds like, you know, people that are focusing all on how do we make our, our neighborhoods better? How do we make our schools better? This sounds like the social gospel. But I want to say, that pushback implies that the true gospel doesn't have social implications of justice. And I'm not going to get into how-tos or what we need to do or how we can act like Jesus, because I don't think that's the point. I think what Jesus wants us to see is that his heart is moved in a way that is nowhere else in the pages of Scripture to anger because of injustice that he sees. He's moved because of the exploitation and the exhortion against those that don't have the same access. He cares because they're image bearers of God. Now, lastly on this section of the temple, um, I want to talk a little bit about anger. And we tend to, I think in, in the West generally, look at a place like this where Jesus does lash out and he's very, very angry with the religious of his day and almost have this embarrassment about it. Like, that's Jesus not keeping this cool. There's a quote that I ran across from a pastor called Paul Tripp. I'm going to read that to you. He said, we must stop thinking about the anger of God as though it's the embarrassing uncle of Christian theology. Listen, in a world where evil exists, the anger of God is your hope. You don't want a God who looks at all the brokenness in this world and says, it's okay. I want to ask you guys, are we thankful that God lets us see what moves his heart? Or would you rather just not see it? Are we thankful that he, in loud words and in loud actions, exposes the glaring blind spots of the religious in his day. I don't think they were intentionally trying to move out those Gentiles, those minority nations religiously from being able to worship, but they were pursuing 
their own things. They're pursuing things in line with their greed of making more money, of getting a little bit more here. And without even realizing it, they were unintentionally preventing other peoples from worshiping. Who or what would Jesus notice today that we don't? Who have no voice in our communities? Who have less influence? Your voice and your influence, and we all have it in different ways, how are we stewarding that? How are we living like Jesus and standing up for those who are oppressed? What would it look like for you to do what Jesus did before he entered the temple, before he cursed the fig tree, and it says he surveyed, he gave it a look over. What would that look like for us to just really listen and look at what's happening without having a political motive in our hearts, without having a preconceived assumption, but just to look, listen, and learn? And what might that move us towards by what we see? How could we better listen to the oppressed and see our own blind spots? And what message do we think that our church is sending to the hurting around us in our city? And then here's one that, for me, has been very convicting. And I was honestly fearful about even preaching this text. I didn't pick this text because I thought, oh, here's a text on two hot-button issues. God actually led me to this text because I was convicted that I had the same kind of assumptions of what Jesus should be in my life that the crowds had. That's what led me to preaching this, but as I started studying, I realized, what is a message? What message am I sending? And is silence a message? Something for us to consider. Lastly, let's move on to the fourth vignette of Jesus. And this is one, um, you know, Jesus connects, like I said, the, the temple to the fig tree because they're both pictures of the state of Israel. And I want us to, to see how the mountain connects to that as well. So already we've covered um, with Jesus' entrance that we should not assume that Jesus will work through a political savior. And then secondly, that we should not assume that our works are necessarily good fruit to him. Thirdly, that we should not assume that our hearts actually are directed in the same way Jesus' is. And then lastly, I want to talk about how we should not assume that we need only a religious fix in our life, but rather, often we'll need an overhaul. So, as I studied this, I was like, oh good, well, I'll end with the mountain part, because that part's pretty uplifting, right? Like, if you have faith, you can move mountains. It's like, all right, <laughs> what else should I move? Like, food. <laughs> it actually was hard for me to realize that it doesn't end, I don't believe, on that kind of note. I think if there was a soundtrack to this whole section, this would be one of the most bleak, sad songs. And honestly, hard for me to preach. Because I don't know exactly what all is meant. But I do know, and I am convinced, that there's something deeper that is meant when he draws his disciples' attention to the mountain and says, if you have faith, even this mountain you can move and cast it into the sea. So, if you guys can open your Bibles, I want to try to give us a glimpse into what I believe was in the back of Jesus' mind throughout both these days, where I think we get an understanding of what the mountain means. So if you guys could, 
I'm going to have you open up to Zechariah. I always get Zephaniah and Zechariah mixed up, so whichever one has more chapters, I think it's Zechariah. I'm going to read to you guys five sections of scripture. I encourage you guys to follow along. And as you're reading along with me, notice the imagery that's used and notice how it connects with the narrative of Jesus in these two days in Jerusalem. So, Zechariah 9, verse 9. The prophet says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Sing aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Chapter 10, verse 2 and 3. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They're afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. Move a few chapters later to chapter 14, verse 21. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Move back a few chapters to chapter 7, verse 9. Dan talks about loving to hear the rustle of scripture pages. It is kind of (laughs) nice. Thus, uh, chapter 7, verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, remember that trilogy, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your hearts. And then skipping to the end of that section, verse 12, therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts. And then lastly, go back to the back of the book in chapter 14 again, in verse 4, and here we get to the mountain. 14, verse 4. On that day, his feet, talking about the Messiah, on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall be moved northward and the other southward. In the Old Testament, there's a picture of the mountain as the place of God. Jerusalem was a city set on a hill. It wasn't as tall as the Mount of Olives, but it was a mountain. And I believe, I don't know for sure, but I believe it's very likely that Jesus was actually looking at the mountain and saying this religious system, this whole thing going on in Jerusalem, moving it into the sea. Our prayers should be for the overthrow of religious oppressive systems. And the kingdom of God does not come in the way that the world expects. So, are we comfortable with this kind of sermon? Probably not. Am I comfortable? 
No. But are we comfortable with Jesus? With what he did here? Are we saddened by what's going on in the disunity in our church and in our country, politically and rationally? Are we panicked by the disunity among us? Or are we, as Dan often says, living as a peaceful presence in the midst of a panicked culture because our Savior has already triumphed? Are we angered by how image bearers of God are treated all over the world? And this isn't just a a racial issue. Are we angered by abortion? Are we angered by sex trafficking? Are we angered by war, an unjust war? Are we angered by the hurt and the harm and the oppression of people who are made in the image of God? Now we moved to act. So I want to close with looking at how Jesus turned all four of these assumptions that we've looked at on their heads. In the first place, the crowds expected a king, but Jesus didn't meet that expectation and that assumption. He didn't defeat Rome then and there, but through the cross and through the resurrection, the most unlikely way, the Jews were not expecting it, he defeated the greater enemies of Satan and sin and all the effects of sin. Secondly, the Jews, like the fig tree, weren't fruitful and ready. But Jesus opened the door wider to the salvation of all peoples, not just the Jewish people who missed that boat, but to the Jews and everyone and lived a fruitful life for us. So the expectation wasn't perfect readiness, but Jesus took that anger and that frustration on the cross for us and he lived his life perfectly and fruitfully and expectantly for God's work for us. Thirdly, they expected him to revere the temple and to cleanse it, to kind of bring it back to what it was, just like Judas Maccabeus did. But Jesus didn't cleanse it, he cleared it. There was an overthrow of the temple because his heart wasn't to restore the brokenness of religion, but to bring relationship through himself, to be united with Jesus, who is the true temple, that is, the presence of God himself on earth with mankind. And then fourthly, they believed that faith and forgiveness were temple things. When Jesus says, have faith and pray to move mountains, And he says, forgive your enemies, is what he ends with. These were things that were dealt with at the temple, right? This was the enactment of our faith, is to go and worship the temple together. This was the enactment of getting forgiveness by sacrificing animals for our sins. And yet Jesus completely overturns that entire system. When we look forward about 30 years in Jesus' life, later, after Jesus' life, in, 30, or in 70 AD, the temple was completely destroyed. Not one rock left on another. And the whole religious system of sacrifices and of faith in the temple was conquered because Jesus was the true means for faith and for forgiveness. 
So I want to end with two big questions before we lead into communion. If Jesus' heart was moved to sorrow by the politically charged religion of his day, who gives you the most hope? And if Jesus' heart was moved to anger by the oppression of the marginalized in his day, who moves your heart? It can easily seem like a message like this is condemnation that we don't measure up enough, that we put our hope in the wrong things, and that we don't have the heart of Jesus. But if God is convicting us that there are blind spots in our lives, that there are people groups that we put our hope in and our trust in, or people groups that we ignore and marginalize in our life, that could be a conviction and an invitation from God to us to experience him more fully, to experience what it is to live and work alongside God in his heart to be the king and ruler of the world and his heart to free and correct the injustice even in our day. So as leading the communion, I want you guys, um, we take communion all together, so there'll be people up in the front. And after we have our communion, and after Will and his band have led in a couple songs, I want you guys to recognize and to, to be thankful to Jesus that he felt the oppression for us. He was marginalized. He was, he had his back, the backs turned on him for us. And I want you guys to think, what does deliverance look like if Jesus just like Israel was taken through the Red Sea and out of Egypt, if Jesus delivered us out of Satan's sin and death into this life with him, what does that look like reflected practically, socially, in our church and in our individual lives? And then lastly in communion, be thankful that Jesus took the anger, that there will never, ever, ever be a point for us as children of God, as believers, that Jesus will look at us with a pissed off look, that he will look at us and shake his head in disappointment. In Christ, that has already been handled and dealt with. Our biggest failures, our biggest blind spots are dealt with, we're forgiven. And in Christ, he took the anger and the wrath of God on the cross, and there's none left for us to think that we deserve a feeling of guilt in our hearts or to think that we deserve God's anger at what we worship or who we overlook, that's minimizing the cross. That's saying Jesus paid for most of it, but didn't quite, didn't quite get that, didn't quite cover that. If Jesus took all the anger, then all we have left is grace. So as you move to communion, let's thank him for that. Let's be thankful that we're a people that have been purchased, not just to preach a good word, but to live good works. I'll lead us in prayer and then Will's gonna come up. Father, thank you so much that you're a God who cares enough to speak and to act. 
Jesus, thank you. Thank you for seeing what we so often don't see. Thank you that you lived this when you came to earth. That your word says that we were helpless. That we were dead in our sins. That we were hopeless. And yet you still came and died for us. God, we have lived lives of rebels. The world has lived in rebellion against you. And yet you decided to let go of this security, of this position, of this immense eternal privilege that you had in heaven on a throne with the Father. And you let that go to come to earth. Not to meet us halfway, but to come all the way down, to sympathize with our weakness, to feel what we feel, to hurt where we hurt, and to love us out of it. So Lord, I pray that this word, though heavy, would lead to a joy in our hearts of knowing how deep your care and compassion is for us, that that would motivate us to have that same kind of care and compassion for others around us. Amen.